0: Grace is scandalous. That's the word that Peter uses in 1 Corinthians to describe the effect of the cross, which is the the source of all grace. He says it's a stumbling block. It's a scandal on. It's outrageous. Grace infuriates people. They don't understand it. It defies our understanding. It doesn't make sense. In one sense, it's attractive. Who doesn't want to be forgiven and accepted and loved? Who doesn't want to have peace after failure? So in one sense, it's attractive. Our hearts long for it. That one way, unconditional, never stopping, never giving up love. On another sense, it's repulsive. If we're honest, it's repulsive. It's abnormal. We don't like it. We like to receive it. We don't like to extend it, right? That's the thing about grace. It's abnormal and it doesn't sell. I was telling my wife this morning, she said, you're not gonna share that as an illustration. If you guys only knew the things my wife cuts out of my messages, I love movies. And you know what sells in Hollywood? You go look at the top 10 best-selling movies. Nearly all of them will have this theme woven throughout. Revenge. Revenge. Braveheart. The Punisher. Uh, name your movie. It's usually a story about revenge. And one of my favorite movies, I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I'm going to save the illustration for later. But the whole thing says, based on a true story. It's about this guy. And he like, man, he gets his revenge. And I, I like to go deep. So I watched the movie and I read the history and I'm like, what? Based on a true That's not what happened at all. Nothing like that happened. The real story is like this guy was probably a believer. He caught up to his captors and he forgave both of them. That doesn't sell though. That's boring. The world doesn't want that. Even though the world needs that, grace infuriates people. That's why when someone extends forgiveness to their attacker or in a courtroom, you see somebody just hands down extending grace to somebody that killed one of their loved ones. People get outraged at that. Because they think the message is, what you did was okay, people getting off scot-free, and that's unacceptable. But it's also very powerful. It's also very powerful. Gary Ridgway was the, uh, the famous or infamous Green River Killer. He was a notorious serial killer, responsible for the deaths of over 100 women in the 80s and 90s, and he was captured in 2001, finally, thank God. And he was put on trial, and the victim's relatives, as they often are, were extended the opportunity to express the pain, the grief, the outrage that his crimes had caused them. And he sat there, this killer, he sat there stone-faced. His family member after family member berated him. They called him an animal. They said what you would expect. They hope he rots in hell. They wished him a slow, painful, agonizing death. And then the father of one of his victims approached the witness stand. An old man with a white beard And in a measured and warm voice, he said, Mr. Ridgeway, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, what God says to do to forgive you, and you, sir, are forgiven. Ridgeway immediately started crying. He melted. He broke down and wept. And later that day, he gave his first statement ever that showed any trace of remorse. The veil of judgment had dropped, and for the first time, he was able to see what he had done. Forgiveness accomplished what judgment, even the most just kind that's deserved, could not. Grace is scandalous. Even religious people don't get this. If you go and you survey all the other religions in the world, which are all false, it's okay to say that, it's true, you'll notice one thing they have in common, works, works. To get in with God, you've got to You've got to get your way in and you've got to work your way to completion. You've got to pay the price, receive the product. Work equals paycheck, success equals reward, and failure equals judgment. Every other religion in the world shows that. There's no assurance at the end of the day that you're right with God. So when we change the equation to failure equals love, people don't like that. Grace is surprising, it transforms us. God's grace does. It changes us. It overpowers and realigns our affections in a way that judgment and criticism can't. Everyone in here who has ever tasted one-way unconditional love, when you deserve judgment, you can attest to the power of that. All of us can. On a horizontal scale as well as a a vertical scale. It's miraculous. One of the best definitions of grace I've ever heard is one-way love. The man who wrote a book about that opens it this way. He says, the message of God's grace or one-way love has captivated me for as long as I can remember. It saved my life, he says, during my early 20s. It restored my marriage in my mid-20s and then created in me a father loved by my children. Grace remade my ministry and made possible my contact with sufferers as well as with prodigals. The message of grace has also proven to be provocative, especially in relation to other Christians. But no apologies here. One way love is the heart of Christianity. It is what makes Christianity Christian. What makes grace so scandalous and offensive is that it requires sin and failure to operate and function. Did you know that? That's what attracts grace, is failure. If grace is a magnet, then failure is a metal. And if failure is a metal, the Apostle Peter was pure iron, wasn't he? In order for grace to demonstrate how powerful it is, how transformative it is, it needs a failure. And that's where the scandal comes. Because we don't treat failures the way Jesus does, do we? Now before we get in the message, I just want to give the entire point away. Because the title is dealing with failure. How do you deal with failure? What do you do with it? Well, I've given away the answer. You plunge your failure so deep into the grace of God that he turns that failure into flourishing. That's what you do with it. You take your failure to the cross as quickly as you can, and you deal with it under the shadow of the cross. You take your faithlessness to the cross. You can even take it to this passage where Peter did, seeing his faithful witness being bloodied up for him while he denies him three times and curses him. It's astonishing, really. You can either do that, you can take your failure and plunge it into the grace of God, Or you can do what Judas did with his failure. You can shrivel up. You can flounder. You can languish. It's like bleeding to death death from a thousand paper cuts. So it's either plunge your failure into the grace of God or experience insanity. And maybe even suicide. Which is what happened. You compare Judas and Peter. Both of them failed. Both of them went into the darkness. One came out. And the other did not he went to his place. They're both prime examples. Only one tasted grace. Grace. Only one of them tasted the the grace of God and came back and did what Jesus said he would do. He strengthened his brothers. It's a really astonishing story. The other experienced regret, remorse, death, and judgment. So how do you deal with failure? I got four points. Four points today. How do you deal with failure? Point number one, don't be shocked. I wanted to say be shocked But don't be shocked because we do things and we say things that shock us. And they should shock us as Christians that we are able, we are capable of going to this place that we never thought we could. So your failures should shock us, but on the other hand, they shouldn't shock you because it's exactly what God told you about yourself. Peter did exactly what Jesus told him he would do, right? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's point one. Point two don't be silent, share your failure. You're not going to like this one, some of you. That's okay though. I'm going to do it anyway because it's in the Bible. Don't be shocked. Don't be silent. Don't be stubborn. Repent. Weep bitterly and take your failure to Christ. And the third one is don't be standoffish. And uh, hopefully these, these will all make sense as we go through them together. So, point one don't be shocked. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was also denied three times by his chief apostle, the leader of the disciples. He warned Peter. He warned Peter. He said, Satan has asked, in Luke's version, Satan has asked for you to sift you. That's, that's You would throw in the ancient world, you would throw grain that you were threshing up in the air and the chafe would be separated. by The, the wind would blow through it and the chafe would be separated and the true get, grain would stay and fall down. And he's saying, Satan wants to separate you from your faith, Peter. And he's asked me permission to do it. And I said, Yes. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you so that when you turn again, when you come back, Peter, strengthen your brothers. That's an astonishing prophecy. If you think about it, it's, it's worth an entire message. But we've got to move on. Peter shouldn't have been shocked. He shouldn't have been shocked at what happened. Jesus told him it would happen. But do you remember Peter's reaction when Jesus told him that? Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. I would go with you to the death. Even if all of these fall away, I'll never fall away. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, this very night, you will have denied me three times, even that you knew me. But you know what Peter said? He said, no, Lord, I love you more. He didn't believe him. Peter did not believe this man's words to him. But he would do exactly what Jesus said. He would be a coward. He would be a failure. He would be more interested in saving his own skin than in identifying himself and serving his Savior. He broke his promise to Jesus, didn't he? How many promise breakers are in this room? Right? You're looking at one right here. My confidence is in his faithfulness, not mine. Peter broke his promise. See, in a moment of crisis like that, the real you comes out, the real you. It, it floats to the surface like cream on milk, right? The milk that comes from the farm, not the... Anyway, Peter saw himself that night for the first time, maybe the real him, and he knows that if, listen, if something's not done about this, Peter's done, he's finished. What's Jesus gonna do about that? Peter's supposed to be the leader. Who's gonna follow him now? If we'll listen, guys, Jesus and God will tell us some shocking things about ourselves if we listen, that we're capable of doing things we could have never imagined. Jesus doesn't do that to rub our noses in the filthy pile of depravity. He doesn't do that. He does it to warn us, and he does it to prepare us. For when you do fail, when it does happen, you're not shocking. Listen, your failure does not shock Jesus let that, true, let that little mini point settle in your heart. Your failure does not shock Jesus and your failure does not stop Jesus. Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell, are not, they're not, it's not gonna prevail against it. Your failure is not gonna shock Jesus. And listen, your failure cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. Paul tells, tells us that. Nothing can separate you. Your sins, your failure, even the shocking kind that you wouldn't tell another human soul about, Jesus feels the same way about you that he did on the cross, that's good news, isn't it? It's good news. Don't be shocked. You're going to fail at some point, he's telling Peter. Brace yourself. You know, Jesus earlier that night said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And man, did, did Peter taste that truth in a bitter way. You can be so close to Jesus, but not be experiencing and tasting his power. Jesus was just right up there, an eye shot of Peter. He was that close to Jesus, and he was still able to fail that close to him. And we can too. Listen, you may feel really close to Jesus and really close to God, and therein lies the danger sometimes. The stronger you are, the taller you are, the harder you fall. Let him who thinks he stands, Paul says, take heed lest he fall. Pride comes before the Paul, the fall. Before the Paul. Pride. It did. Saul was a proud man, and then came Paul. That's another sermon for another day. We are one decision away from completely ruining our lives. That's a hard thing to confess, but guys, that's true. It happens all the time in ministry. We are one decision. My, my old pastor used to say. This church is five minutes away from complete and utter utter ruination unless God keeps his hand of restraining grace upon us. That's true. One of my favorite pastors to listen to is Ray Orland. He has a church called Emmanuel in Nashville and he described his church this way. And I love this. This so helps me. Listen to this. He says, Emmanuel Church is an unshockable gentle fellowship where seriously flawed people who are alarmed at themselves and afraid of what they might do this afternoon can come in and get a new start. See, some of you, that may bristle at you. You may not like that, but all Ray is doing is saying we are capable of some shocking things if we let go of Jesus. Some things that would shock us and shock the world, but they don't shock Jesus. Jesus. And this is the kind of church where you can come in and get a fresh start when that happens. This is a place where you can experience power together so that it doesn't happen. I love that description. I want Grace Life to be a church like that. If you're one of those people who say, I'd never do something like that, let me ask you a question. Why in the world not? Is it beneath you? Are you just better than that? Are you stronger than that? Guys, this is the Apostle Peter. He walked with Jesus for three years. He walked on water to Jesus and sank, and Jesus saved him on the ocean. He saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law of a deadly fever. He was taken to the mountain with Jesus and watched him transfigure before him. He was given power by Jesus to raise people from the dead, to cast out demons, to heal people. That Peter, that Peter denied his master three times. It's really interesting. I don't want to geek out on you too much. But in the Greek, this verb, when it says that Peter cursed Whatever translation you're using, it probably says something like this. Peter, the second time, I think verse 70, it says he swore and he cursed and said, I do not know him. Some translations say he, he pronounced a curse on himself. That's not a good translation of what this says in Greek. This verb is not reflexive. It doesn't bounce back on itself. He cursed himself. It's transitive. And in Greek, it doesn't even have an object. Most scholars believe that Mark is being very kind and polite here, and what he's trying to tell you is that Peter cursed Christ. He cursed Christ. Shock. That's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. The eminent apostle Peter denied his master three times and called down a curse on him. Why? To save his own skin. People said that during that time when persecution broke out, one of the ways that the civil and religious authorities would really do a litmus test and find out if you were a true disciple as they would command you to curse Jesus. And if you curse Jesus, well, he, no true disciple would curse their master. It makes sense, doesn't it? Peter failed miserably. He failed big time. He failed colossally, colossal failure. he's swearing an oath that he's not a disciple. It's really ironic. Here's Jesus right up above him. He's in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus is up there, and he he is being asked a question, are you the Christ? And he answers truthfully, and he's condemned. Here's Peter below him being asked a question, are you a disciple? And he answers deceitfully, and he's let go. Isn't that ironic? Two trials going on here, and there's only one faithful witness. There's only one faithful witness then, and there's only one faithful witness now. It's Jesus. He's the faithful witness. Don't be shocked at your failure, especially when you've boasted in your strength. That's point one. It can happen to Peter. It can happen to us. Pornography, deception, an affair, betrayal, don't be shocked when your failure comes. And it will. It can Your failure does not disqualify you. Jackie Hill Perry said this, we may be surprised by our own depravity, but Jesus is not. We may be tempted to say, that's not the real me, but it is. Facing, listen to this, facing and admitting our failures is one way Jesus teaches us what the gospel is. Man, don't you love that? You know what happens to failures in the world? You know what happens to people that are deserters in the military? I don't, This is still, I don't think it still happens. You know what happens if you're in war? You're fighting with the army and you get really frazzled and paranoid and paralyzed with fear and you run over the hill and don't come back. You know what happens if you get caught? What happens to deserters, guys, in the civil war? You're shot. You're done. Useless, worthless, discarded and executed. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't like that? Aren't you glad he doesn't discard us when we fail him? That he still can use us and he still wants to. That's the beauty. That's the power. He still wanted Peter. He still wants you. He still wants me. We're the only kind of people he can use, guys. There's nobody else. The bench doesn't go very deep. Jesus is a scary scout for talent. (laughs) He comes out on the ball court and sees the kid that has two left feet, can't dribble the ball, and he says, you're on my team. I don't want the LeBron James of the world. You make me look better, right? God wanted to use Peter. But listen, in order for Peter to be the rock, he had to crumble into a million pieces under the weight of his own self-importance. So be shocked, but don't be shocked. That's point one, okay? I know it's, it's a conundrum, that's okay. Point two, don't be silent. Don't be silent. I'm sorry, I'm having some trouble here. My phone timing this. Don't be silent, you say, where's that in the text? Listen guys, I've told you before. All scholars of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all agree, even the really liberal ones who don't trust the Bible, they agree. Whatever Mark, this guy, Mark, wrote, Peter was his informant. The apostle Peter is probably sitting in a chair, and he's giving his oral recounting of what happened in the life and times with Jesus. Peter's telling Mark everything he wrote down. And isn't it astonishing that Peter includes this? Let me just say, this is just a side note, okay? To me, this is proof that you can trust the Bible. Because if, if the leaders of the church would have written what they probably wanted to write, without the direction and superintendence of the Holy Spirit, this would have gotten next. <laughs> the, the main leader and the band of disciples that followed Jesus He cursed his master and denied him three times and was a colossal failure. You don't include that stuff in your religious literature. Go and look at every other false religion in the world and read the the accounts of the heroes. See if you can find the chinks in their armor. Nope, not recorded. We get this, though. It's in all four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in there. Why? Peter's not silent. He wanted to share this. You know why? Because Jesus told him, Look, Satan's asked to sift you, you will fail me. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that you return again, that you turn back, that you repent. And when you come back, you can strengthen your brothers. You know why Peter's including this? He's doing what Jesus prayed he would do. He's strengthening you, he's strengthening me. You need this story, you need this. Don't be silent about your failures. When they come, don't be silent about them, guys, because listen, that is the platform, that's the showroom floor for how the gospel comes into contact with you in real time and transforms your heart. And I'll say this, parents, here's a little freebie, okay? Your kids are gonna ask you things about your past and they're gonna put you on a spot and it's gonna feel really awkward and really uncomfortable. You need to really pray how you answer them. I know some things are so sensitive and maybe sexual in nature and you need to be careful, age appropriate. My son the other day, man, I've been crying every week, haven't I? Do it, not gonna do it. I'm driving with my son. I don't know why. Maybe it was a, a billboard or I don't, I don't know what it was. He said, Daddy, have you ever been drunk? Oh, it just got real in here. Everybody got quiet. Well, preacher, would you? <laughs> now, look, here, just sit, pull the car over. Hit the pause button. The answer is yes. Yes, I've been drunk. I'm ashamed to say that. I, and it wasn't once, okay? Now, that was a long time ago, okay? Just... <laughs> So I, I, could answer, I could answer a certain way. Son, don't, don't ask me questions like that. I could have said that. I could have said, heck yeah, son, you should have seen your dad at the frat house. I could have said that. Or I could have said, no, no, son, no. Daddy's, daddy loves God. Daddy would never do that. I could have answered all three of those. And all three of them, some of them really wrong and sinful. I would have. I would have, I would have missed a very, powerful, redemptive moment to disciple my son. I would have. So you know what I said? I told my, all my kids, yes, I have been drunk. And it was one of the most shameful things that ever happened to me because I got caught. And I was driving. And your daddy got pulled over. And I got arrested. And I got taken to jail. And I had to call my daddy at three in the morning to come and get me. And I didn't think I, would, I was ever capable of anything like that. It's the most shameful and hard thing I've ever experienced in my life. And it was one of the most powerful platforms God ever gave me to take a real hard, close, scrutinizing look at who I really was. And it led ultimately to my conversion. And God forgave me of that. Now listen, that's just not for parents though. We're all, we've been talking women knowing God, men knowing God about discipling, discipleship. Guys, don't hide your flaws and your failures. You are not servicing the people that you're trying to help, I promise you. I don't ever wanna do that as a leader. I go out of my way to try and share things when it's appropriate about I'm a human being and I am deeply and profoundly flawed, but I have a faithful savior who's always been there. Jonathan Dotson wrote a book on discipleship and and he confesses, he says this, Making disciples requires not only sharing our faith, but also sharing our lives, failures and successes, disobedience and obedience. Real discipleship is messy, imperfect, and honest. I wanted clean, perfect, and limited honesty. I preferred to disclose only my successes, to pass on my accumulated wisdom and knowledge while hiding my foolishness and ignorance. You know another reason this is in the Bible? Because God knew what people would do. They would put halos over these apostles and they would worship them and they would pray to them. And Peter says, No, nobody's going to ever do that to me. If they actually read the Bible, they won't. (laughs) Take that halo right off of my head. I cursed Christ, I denied him three times, I ran away. I flaked big time. Don't be silent. By the way, just back that tape up. So guess what happens if one of my kids is ever at a party and does something really foolish and really stupid and they need my help? If I were to tell them, oh, I've never done anything like that, son, guess who they're not gonna call? Guess who they're not gonna call? If your kids have to talk to their grandparents or their uncles and aunts to get the dirt on you, you need to really evaluate yourself. I'm serious. (laughs) My kids know daddy was a loser and still is sometimes, but you know what? That's okay. I've got a powerful Savior with an amazing gospel that can be unleashed in my life and in theirs when I'm honest. Honesty is so painful. It's so painful, man. But there is freedom on the other side, friends. One of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption, Don't Judge Me. Powerful moment at the very end when Morgan Freeman is narrating and he says, Andy Dufresne crawled through 500 yards of 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 vile, disgusting, and then uses a word to describe what it was. It was poop. He says 500 yards, that's five football fields. He said, I can't even imagine the disgusting stuff he crawled through to get through his, to his freedom on the other side. That's the way I view honesty. You want real freedom? You want real freedom, then you gotta be honest with God and you gotta be honest with yourself. Freedom awaits you on the other side. And if you really wanna have a breakthrough in discipleship or parenting, you want the walls to come down, you gotta let people see you're a real human and that you're a sinner at times and you bleed. It's not your identity. Your failures don't identify you. You're in Christ now. But that doesn't mean you're perfect. You're not glorified. We're delivered from the power of sin and we're delivered from the penalty of sin. But the presence of sin, that's on the other side. of it. you wanna do that, then you gotta die, right? Or Jesus has gotta come back. Until then, there's a fight, there's a struggle. And we gotta keep it real and we can't be silent about our failures, Man, I'm sorry, guys. Just, all right. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 51. Have I, have I shared this with you guys? I forget. Psalm 51, Psalm of Repentance. David, some people say it was rape, sexual immorality, adultery, whatever happened with Bathsheba, we don't ever see that he got permission from her or that it was consensual, okay? Whenever David did that and, and committed murder and conspiracy, some say he broke all 10 commandments when he did that. And David was just going on about his life, living in denial, heart and heart. And then the prophet Nathan came and confronted him and David repented. And he wrote a psalm. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. The subscription which is inspired said a psalm of David, a psalm of repentance when he, uh, after Nathan the prophet, came in and confronted him. Now, this is what should blow us away, okay? David was a king. David committed a sin worthy of capital offense. He he should have and could have been killed for that, but God spared him and had mercy. And David went and reflected on how how good God was to a sinner like him. And he wrote this Psalm. You know what what David did with it? Don't forget this, guys. You know what the book of Psalms is? It's a hymnal for the Israelites. It's their their hymn book. They sang those songs. They they sang those songs. David wrote this Psalm and he brought it to uh, the sons of Korah. And he said, hey, I've been thinking, I wrote a song here. And they're like, oh, great, David, we love your songs. What's this one about? He says, well, it's about uh, this, my sexual immorality. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> hang on, David. We can't, I don't know. Uh, maybe you'd need to go talk to Chris Tomlin or somebody. I don't, I don't know if we want to. He's like, no, God, God wants us to sing this in the temple every week. Don't be silent about your failures. There's, there's real power because we're, Your failures is where you intersected with the good news of the gospel. If you don't share your failures, your kids and the people you disciple, they just think that grace is the answer for a test they're never going to take. It'd be a word on a piece of paper, something they hope they never need. That's a tragic way to live your life and a tragic way to not pass on the good news to other people. I didn't want to take that long on that point, but man, that is so important. Don't be shocked. Don't be silent. Uh, Jesus told Peter, I've prayed for you. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's why he's not silent. That's why this is here. He's not hiding it. He's not hiding his flaws. Aren't you glad that God did not hide the flaws from all the saints? We see the taints of the saints. (laughs) I heard a guy the other day, he's saying, do you realize that the heroes, he said, not the villains, the heroes in the Bible couldn't get hired at my church. This is a guy that was preaching. He said they wouldn't pass the human resources screening test. I didn't think about it. Moses comes in for an interview. Okay, let me see, Moses. I see here, oh, oh, can you tell me about the Egyptian you killed and buried? He goes, well, that was a long time ago. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know, but I I have references here from Aaron and from Miriam that you lose your temper, you're hitting rocks with staffs and cursing, and you know, you can't do that, bro. You can't work here, Moses, and do that. I'm sorry. I mean, fill in the blank, all of the heroes and heroines in the Bible. They couldn't, they couldn't get hired at this church probably, right? Noah, you uh, tell me about that perverted, drunken. I mean, think about it, guys. It would be endless. But I'm thankful in a weird way that it's there because it encourages me. Not because, oh, I'm better than them. No, it's because I'm like them. <laughs> I'm just like them and so are you. And God's grace is powerful in our lives just as much as it was in theirs. Third point, don't be stubborn. Look what it says here that Peter did when this happened. Look at verse, uh, let me see. Look at verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. By the way, this servant girl is like a guilty conscience to Peter, isn't she? And really, honestly, it's a, God shows Peter multiple mercies when he's about to die. The rooster crows, not twice, The rooster doesn't crow twice, it crows once. He denied Jesus the first time and Jesus is like, Peter, (laughs) Peter, watch yourself. Peter ignores it. He walks away, he's warming his hands. And then he's talking with people because they notice his accent like me. (laughs) You're from Arkansas, your accent, they're like, you're a Galilean. You're a Galilean. This servant girl's chasing him around. He says, no, 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 I don't know him. I don't know the man. He can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. Now Jesus is just an outsider, a stranger, just a man. Just a man. He doesn't know him. And then look what happens. And immediately, verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. In Greek, the better translation is he wept deeply and ran out or broke down. He was, a, he was a hot mess here, just a puddle of tears. He remembered. He heard the rooster crow and he remembered the words of the Lord. Man, that's repentance. That's the very beginning of repentance is thinking again. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, when a man or a woman begins to think again, there's hope. He remembered Jesus' warning to him that you're gonna do this. But you know what else I think? You know what I think? It's not in this text. I think Peter also remembered Jesus saying, but. <laughs> Thank the Lord for the butts in the Bible, right? But I have prayed for you, Peter. That you will turn again and come back and strengthen your brothers. Don't be stubborn. See, Peter's heart could have been hardened. He could have just been remorseful like Judas was. And went and tried to fix it. Have you ever tried to fix your failures on your own? Well, I'll just take the money back. I don't want it. He's an, in, I betrayed innocent blood and I'm sorry. Can't we, gosh, can't we just forget about this? And no, you see to it. There's, listen guys, there is no grace any other place besides Jesus. Anywhere else you go, no, you go deal with it. You go fix this. And so Judas did. He did fix it. He fixed it the only way you'll ever be able to fix your flaws outside of the cross with insanity and regret. No, Peter was a broken man. He was crushed under the weight of his own self-importance and that's the beginning of hope because Peter broke down and he wept and he remembered Jesus. Now listen, I don't want to preach an entire sermon on this. This is so powerful though. I don't feel like I can leave this out and do justice to what happened. Mark is the abbreviated version here. He gives us quick facts but Luke includes something here that is so powerful. It's so powerful and I want you to see it with your own eyes. Check this out. Guys, let let the Spirit of God apply what you're about to read and experience here to your hearts for your own failures. Because you need to know what happened when Peter heard that rooster crow and remembered the words of the Lord. Something else happened. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, "'Certainly this man also was with you, for he too is a Galilean.' But Peter said, "'Man, I don't know what you're talking about.' And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter." Wow. Wow. Did you guys know that was in the Bible? Did you know that? You just thought, yeah, Jesus is somewhere he can't... The the rooster crowed, Peter breaks down. No, 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 listen. Peter's down in the courtyard. Jesus' trial is taking place up above in the court with Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter denies Jesus, and then the rooster crows, and then he and the Lord... It doesn't say Jesus, it says the Lord... They lock eyes. Now, I want to ask you a question, and this will determine your understanding of the Christian gospel. What kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter? Because your answer to that probably will reveal a lot about how you think God feels about you when you fail. What kind of look do you? This is it says the Lord. This is God. You are falling under the gaze of God. People have written volumes on this. Some people go insane thinking about this. Jean-Paul Sartre was an existentialist and philosopher. He used to write about this, the gaze of God. It would drive him insane. Even other people that he thought were, he told told uh, an illustration once of a man who was in a park sitting on a bench enjoying enjoying the park, enjoying the sights, the smells, And then he noticed a man standing in the corner who was looking at him. And it was unnerving. It was unsettling. It made him nauseous and paranoid. And then he noticed it was only a mannequin. And he was back to his joyful time before. We're we're like that. It's like Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart, that old man's eye staring at us that we just want to get rid of it. That's what most people think. Maybe Jesus, that was the experience when Peter looked at, at Jesus, piercing eyes of judgment. Is that what you think? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Now, keep this in mind. Jesus had been beaten to a pulp. Remember the passage last week? His beard is plucked out. He spit on. It says the guards received him. Lombano, Cato Lombano, super received him with blows. I mean, it's just staggering to think about this. They just had their way with Jesus, and he turned the cheek. He must have been a bloody... (sighs) It's hard to imagine Peter looking up, denying, cursing him. He cursed him, denied him and then cursed him, and he looked up and they locked eyes. This bloody pulp, his savior, and he looks at Peter. And what do you think he experiences? I think he experiences the grace of God in that look. That must have been one of the most beautiful things and horrific things that Peter can ever imagine seeing in his life. In that look, Peter found pardon. It was not an ounce of judgment. You know when when I called my dad that night? when I got arrested, it was 3 a.m. Oh, I did not want to call my dad. Oh, I, did not want to, I did not want to call my dad. I said, dad, I'm at the jail. I got caught drinking. I was driving. I'm really sorry. Can you please come and get me? And my dad showed up. And he hugged me. <laughs> he hugged me was not an ounce of judgment. Have you, have you ever received grace when you expected judgment and maybe deserved judgment? That's a miracle. And that's the most powerful reality in the world. That will change you. That will change you. That changed Peter. He never forgot it. He never forgot it. That led to Peter's repentance. Listen, guys. The goodness of God leads to repentance, Romans 1. The goodness of God, not the severity, not the judgment, not the anger, the fury, the wrath. Those things are all important, and they're all in the Bible, and I've preached them. Those things don't lead people to repentance. The goodness of God leads to repentance. That's why I preach the gospel as often as God lets me preach here, because I know if there's people living in sin, living in failure, living in weakness, and they need to repent, there's certain people say, Tommy, you've got to drop the hammer now. You've got to go get it. I want some hard preaching. But guys, the goodness of God leads to repentance. If I want repentance to take place in this congregation, it doesn't mean I ignore the judgment of God or or go light and, and soft with judgment when I get to it. I preach those things. I gotta be faithful to the whole counsel of God. But I look at the Bible and I look at the theme that emerges over and over, and it's the power of God's grace. One way, unconditional love coming at you that's got nothing to do with you being acceptable. Grace that will melt you and transform you. In order for Peter to be a great leader, he had to be a big failure first. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. That's powerful. And then you know what? One day Peter would be crucified upside down by request. Did you know that? History tells us that. Peter got another chance to be faithful to Jesus. When the Neronian persecution came out, Peter got arrested. History tells us that they took him to a cross and he said, would you please crucify me upside down? I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way that my master was. And they granted his request. That's a different Peter, isn't it? Well, when you see the eyes of God and there's no judgment in them, (laughs) there's grace and pardon. There's pain, there's compassion, there's grief. What you did grieved me, Peter. That's not worthy of the gospel, but there was pardon, there was forgiveness, and there was peace. Oh, you can do anything. There's a story about Thomas Cranmer. Have you ever heard of him? One of the main uh, Protestant reformers in England. And he was arrested when Bloody Mary took the throne. He was arrested along with Hugh Latimer and Ridley. And they were all demanded to recant of their writings, their teachings, to renounce everything they had said, and to say that the Pope had authority and they refused. All of them refused. And so they took Hugh Latimer and Ridley down in the courtyard yard below. I told you this, I stood in the place where they burned and they lit them on fire. And they burned alive, but they would not recant. And then they went back up to Thomas Cramner and they said, you're next. And he caved in. He said, I recant, I recant, I'll sign it, I'll sign it. And he signed it. And then they drug him to the pulpit at the Church of Oxford. And they said, now tell everybody that document you just signed. And he shocked everybody. You know, what he, you know what he said? He said, I have recanted privately, but I want to repent publicly of my private recanting. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> and then, of course, they drug him out of the pulpit and they drug him down to the same place where they burned his friends. And you know what he said? Oh, man. He said, let the hand that denied Jesus burned first and he thrust it into the fire. Why? Because God's grace has a power to it. See, he had experienced Jesus pardoning him for recanting in the first place. And that will unleash a power in your life where you are able to be a faithful witness. Guys, listen, I wanna tell you something. Being a faithful witness will cost you. If being a faithful witness for Jesus is not costing you, you need to ask yourself some hard questions because Jesus is Lord He's Lord in your relationships, in your sex life, with your money, with your family, with your career. He's Lord. And for you to be faithful to him is gonna (laughs) cost you at some point, it is. But when you see the power that that you receive, when you understand his grace, it's, it's a powerful reality, the most powerful reality, I think, in the world. Sinclair Ferguson said this, about the look of Jesus. By the way, I've looked long and hard to find artwork. I can't. What I think would that look, but here, here's somebody's feeble effort. Sinclair said this. He said, that look was to be Peter's salvation, for he saw in those eyes, not condemnation, but compassion. That was the turning point in his life. Now, in this most painful and memorable of ways, Peter saw himself as he really was, repented, and was remade into the great apostle. We all have our moments, friends, when we overestimate our own holiness and piety and devotion to Jesus, and we fall flat on our faces. But how sweet, how sweet is the look of grace? <laughs> Isn't it sweet? Here's the last thing. Don't be standoffish. Last point, don't be standoffish. Say, what are you talking about? Well, Mark ends his account right there, and it's like, well, pfft. This seems more like Peter failed. You're making this all about the grace of God. I just don't see a lot of that there. Well, listen, you got to take a step back and look at the whole picture. And Mark gives us a little hint a little bit later. Look what he says in chapter 16. Cliff read this earlier. Can you imagine what Peter, even though Peter repented, he broke down, he wept. Can you imagine what he's he's thinking? Jesus had called him the rock. He said, you're going to lead the church, Peter. You're going to be my apostle, my dude, my compadre. We're going to be a gospel posse. And then that happened. Can you imagine what Peter thinks? Jesus may forgive me. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'll still be, I don't know, but he'll never use me. He doesn't want me. I failed. I disqualified myself. You ever thought that? It's too late for me. There's no hope for me. I'll just kind of neander my way through life and I'll be mediocre Christian maybe and always feel defeated and rejected. No, God's not having that. Jesus is not having that. Jesus knew how Peter thinks and he knows how you and I think. So, something amazing happened when he rose from the grave, and the women, as another sermon, the women were the first. Talk about faithful. Who were the faithful people in the New Testament? The, the ladies were. Way to go, ladies. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, right? The ladies were there, and they, they saw an angel, and the angel said something really amazing. Check this out. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they lay him, but go tell his disciples. Oh, check this out. Check this out. It's a nugget right here. Tell his disciples and Peter. Woo, hallelujah. You tell Peter. You tell Peter. I still want him. I still love him. I'm still going to use him. You tell Peter I'm not finished with him. I'm just getting started. Woo, guys, that's powerful. You tell Peter. Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is keeping his promise, Peter, even though you didn't, even though you couldn't. Jesus is faithful. Now, I wanna show you something else. This is a bonus, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Listen, guys, I wanna ask you a question. What kind of effect does it have on you when you receive pardon like that? When you are hard and angular and critical and judgmental? Can I tell you a short story? Guys, we're going over a little bit on time. We okay? All right, bear with me. Who's gonna say no? Close it down. (laughs) I was a college pastor once upon a time for five years and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I'm so grateful for the leaders that entrusted me and let me cut my teeth that I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. You know what I did? I chased college students around for five years and tried to whip them into shape and tried to scare them into obedience. That's what I did. That's what I did. You know what? It did not go well. It did not go well. And, and God had to break me. I didn't see it at the time. They tried to tell me. God tried to show me. You know, what the, the most interesting thing when I look back is this. I'm like throwing myself at these kids. I'm like, let's go out and eat lunch. Let's go hang out. I want to counsel you. I want to disciple you. And they're like, ah, uh, Pastor, ah. Uh, um, schools, school's going on and we're really busy. And I'm just coming in town for the weekend. Maybe, maybe next time, Pastor Tommy, maybe we can go have lunch or something. They didn't want to be around me. And I didn't get it. I thought, what's wrong with these kids? Jerks? Unfaithful? Don't they know? I've got power. I can help them. I know the Bible. But what I did notice is they all went to the youth pastor, see, that taught them through high school. Gracious, compassionate, loving, tender. See, they were having lunch with him left and right until the cows come home, and they're like walking down the hall and like turning around when they see me. I I, I couldn't get it. I didn't get it. Listen, guys, nobody is attracted to critical people and judgmental people. Nobody is. And I will tell you this, if you think that's how God views you when you're in Christ, you're going to have a hard time having your quiet time. Oh, I hit a nerve. (laughs) I hit a nerve maybe, didn't I? How many of you are having a really hard time spending time with Jesus? Because see, you think that you looked up and you saw the bloody, pulverized face of Jesus and you saw like the brass and the, and the the flaming eyes of judgment from Revelation. No, that's not for you, friend. That's for the people who have rejected the gospel altogether. You have forgotten that beautiful look of grace that God wants to extend your way in Christ. I want to show you this. Check this out. Look at this next verse. So, these ladies that heard the angel say that, Luke puts the pieces together. And they returned from the tomb, and they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who had told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter... <laughs> see, all the other disciples said, you ladies are nuts. You're straight up crazy. You didn't see no angel. He didn't say nothing to you. And they're like, where's Peter? Peter heard the word. You tell Peter. Peter. I'm going before you to Galilee, just like I'll. You tell Peter. What did Peter do? He rose and he ran to the tomb. He ran to the tomb. He stooped. He looked in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know why? Because that's what grace does, guys. Grace makes you run. It makes you run to be faithful. It makes you run toward obedience. It makes you run to Jesus. And there's another story in John chapter 21, I'll just suffice it to say, because we're running out of time. You remember whenever Jesus, he reappeared after the resurrection and glorified for him? And the disciples had gone fishing again, and they're fishing, and they're not catching anything. Remember that? Um, and Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus yet. He's on the ocean, he's on the shore, and he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That's the first way that Jesus called Peter. Remember, he was a fisherman. And whenever the first time it happened, in Luke chapter five, I think, Peter saw, oh my goodness, this man is God. And he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You remember that? Now Jesus is reenacting this miracle to draw Peter back in. And what does Peter do this time? They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's Jesus, it's the Lord, he's back. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, He hid his face. Now that's not what he did. What did he do? He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea and he couldn't swim fast enough to get to Jesus on the shore. That's the power of grace. It will make you run to Jesus. It will make you swim to Jesus. You don't have to crawl to Jesus in the dirt groveling, guys. That's not grace. It's just a powerful reality here. Well, listen, I'm out of time. Just let me say this. It's not ironic that this is a trial Peter's on trial. Jesus is on trial. Peter swears an oath that he's telling the truth. He curses. Jesus is put under solemn solemn oath by the high priest. Peter lies. Jesus tells the truth. Peter is let free. He's let go. He goes scot-free, and Jesus is condemned. What in the heck is going on here? What's Mark trying to tell us? Jesus is not just the faithful witness. He's your faithful witness. He's your substitute. He's the faithful witness you will never be. If your confidence is in your faithfulness, friends, you're gonna have a, a very difficult journey as a Christian. You need to let the truth of the gospel sink down deep into your heart. Let that scandalous grace just overtake you so that you can run to Christ. And look, when you see what Jesus did for you, when, it, when the penny drops in your heart, you'll be able to say, let the hand that has denied Christ burn first. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love, for your grace. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for all the ways and at all the times we are unfaithful to you. Thank you for the power, the unrelenting, unextinguishable, unstoppable power of your grace. Lord, your grace changes us. Your love transforms us. We know that, but we forget it. We forget it, even like Martin Luther, his biographer, says. Fifteen years after the Reformation with a group of friends, Lord, he said he still struggles to believe he will find a gracious God. Lord, we're the same way. We struggle to believe that you're that gracious, but you are. You go out of your way to show us and to tell us and you send your Holy Spirit and our spirit cries out with your spirit that we are children of God and and we need that assurance, God, to function as Christians in this fallen, hostile world. Help us to leave here today with a, a hop in our step, with our heart filled with hope, with our fears melted, Lord. Help us to celebrate as we sing and spend time reflecting on your goodness in this time of prayer. Thank you for those you brought today, Lord. May this message penetrate their heart. May they know Christianity is not about try hard or do better. It's about look at the gaze of God that's filled with grace and pardon and forgiveness. And you too can get in on this. You set the bar so low for who can be a follower. Whosoever believes, thank you, Lord. You made it where a child can enter your kingdom.